Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. And welcome. Uh, we're doing a show today on the anniversary of the bombing in Boston uh, at the marathon. Um, although we're exploring a kind of a larger topic. As we began to talk about this, and we, we put both shows together, Where We Live and our show, and the staffs kind of talked about this. And we decided that Where We Live would focus, as they did this morning, a lot on Boston and on what happened in Boston. And that we'd pull back the lens a little bit. Because to me, as I said at that meeting, it's not just the one thing. It's really... Uh, if you think about what the last 15 years of American life have been like, they've been really kind of different than the 15 years that preceded them. Um, in many ways, the uh, illusion of safety was shattered, and, and the illusion of stability was shattered. In some ways, I really do start the the counting of this particular American era in 2000, where we had this incredibly disputed American election, which people found very disconcerting. We're not used to our presidential elections being thrown into chaotic endings. Uh, we're not used to going to bed on election night, and not knowing who the president is, or getting up the next morning and find out finding out that we still don't know. Um, in many ways, I think that was one of the things that began to sort of ruffle and unsettle uh, the American psyche. Uh, obviously, uh, a year or more later, uh, it was 2001. It was September 11th, and there was a shock to our system, almost unlike any we have had, unless you would count Pearl Harbor. Um, since then, other things have happened, and in recent years, here in Connecticut, obviously, we've all been touched uh, by the tragedy at Newtown, and, and not too long after that, as we were mentioning, the Boston Marathon bombing. So. These are things which begin to pile up on one another, I think, and, and ask bigger questions about our own inner resilience, about our attitudes towards life in American public spaces, uh, and about what the cumulative effect on our psyches are uh, of this kind of life, this slightly different version of American life from the one that preceded us. So uh, later in the show today, we're going to talk to a, a researcher. This is actually, That's actually a taped interview. Uh, which we recorded a few days ago, uh, Allison Holman. She's an associate professor of nursing uh, at the University of Chicago, Irvine. She's been kind of at the forefront of studying what happens when you watch a lot of media coverage of this kind of thing. Is it the same as experiencing it in the flesh? Is it different? What does it do? Uh, and, and can it be measured? The answer is yes, it can be measured. I'll tell you that much right now. Towards the end of the show, we'll also be talking to Brian Michael Jenkins. He's a senior advisor to the president of the RAND Corporation and the author of Several books, including Will Terrorists Go Nuclear and The Long Shadow of 9-11, America's Response to Terrorism. That'll be a little bit more about the kind of the nuts and bolts uh, of how American life sets up these days, once again, as compared to the life that preceded it. But for the whole show, joining me for the whole show today is someone we met under the worst possible circumstances, the Newtown shooting, but someone who's uh, turned out to be a very valuable resource to us over time. John Woodall is a board-certified psychiatrist and the founder and director of the Unity Project, a resilience learning system that was developed to promote resilient strengths in youth. So, John, you and I are going to be talking about a lot of these things. We've talked about different versions of them in the past, but maybe the way to begin, and I should also say we're live here in the afternoon if people have their own comments and questions about this. Uh, the number is 860-275-7266. 
there are places in the world where one senses anyway that um, there are acts of violence that recur, occur with such frequency that explosions happen, glass is shattered, and a day or so later, uh, shopkeepers and cafe owners are sweeping up the glass and writing the cafe tables and kind of attempting to get on with life. That's not the way the United States is. On the other hand, I don't think we can discount the fact that, as I said, over the last 13 or 14 years, American life is feels a little less stable than maybe it did in the years that preceded us. Would you, first of all, agree with that? I absolutely agree with that. I think uh, I'm very grateful that you framed the question in that way because mm-hmm. I, I think you're right. If we become too focused on one event, we lose mm-hmm. the forest for the trees. I think there's a, a large historic process going on that we need to be uh, sensitive to that's shaking the very idea of what it means to be an American uh, what it means to be a citizen in a democracy. <clears throat> and um, so uh, these are the, the, framing it the way you did, I think, is exactly the, the right beginning. So then the question becomes, <clears throat> what kinds of resources do we develop for, for that? It's, it's not, I mean, in fact, I, I think for a long time, prior to, to 9-11, there was this sense that these things happened someplace else. They don't happen here. And then on September 11th, 2001, they happened here. So does, does that argue for developing different inner resources, different networks of resources? Uh, I, I know that you're very wary of turning an entire population into patients of some kind. Well, exactly. I, if I can give a little story. Sure. Uh, something that happened after 9-11. The, the city of New York gave me a call. Uh, well, not the city, but a couple of commissioners uh, in the mayor's office uh, gave me a call to ask that question. What do we do with all the kids in the city? After this horrible event, do we put them all in therapy? Do we get you know refer them to the mental health care system? And uh, my first comment to them was absolutely not. Do not turn the kids of the city into patients. Uh, first of all, the mental health system couldn't accommodate it anyway. Uh, it's already a broken system. But also, we don't. We're not patients. We're not mentally ill just because we've suffered or just because we're confused. It, uh, this isn't a mental illness. This is the stuff of life. This is the this is what life hands us. So let's not pigeonhole a, a profoundly human experience that's very complex and pigeonhole it into a mental health rubric. Um, so then the question became, well, what is it then? Well, how do we view this thing? And uh, if you got a couple minutes, I can explain what I said to them. We got that done. Well, uh, I, I said, well, let's just begin with the experience of suffering. When we experience something terrible, whether it's a, a veteran, uh, having had the opportunity to work with veterans and trauma clinics or people in Bosnia or people uh, who'd experienced the, the collapse of the buildings in 9-11, that the, it, it shakes us in very primordial ways. And, and the, the natural instinctual responses are the, the thing we've all heard about, that fight-or-flight response where our brainstem gets activated and we, we become filled with adrenaline, which activates one of two survival emotions. And this is really an important point two survival emotions of fear or anger. And we all have a propensity for one maybe over the other. We all are capable of all those, both of those feelings, but maybe we fall on a spectrum uh, more towards one or the other. But if I could just develop this idea a little bit, it's not just that this fear takes over uh, 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 our emotions, obviously, but it's all, it also captures and enslaves, you could say, the way we think. Uh, if you're angry, you only think of things that will justify being angry. Uh, if, you know, if you had an argument with someone you know, and they say something that gets you upset, then everything they say after that is proof to you how evil they are. Or if you're in a laughing jag, everything you, everything you experience is just hilarious. Uh, 
as long as you're in an emotion, everything you think reinforces that emotion. So if you're caught in this fearful emotion, the world looks scary, and everything justifies why you need to be afraid, uh, uh, contrary w- with fear the same way, that uh, uh, if, if we are, are frightened by it, uh, angered by an experience, then uh, everything we experience justifies being more angry. This turns into patterns of thinking that we identify with over time. And this is the point I made to the folks in New York that I think is relevant to the discussion about Boston as well, is that we live in a scary time. We're constantly being uh, undermined. Our sense of security is being undermined constantly. What's going on in Russia, what's going on, uh, you know, the, the shooting at the synagogue the other day or at the, uh, the, uh, the Senior Citizen Center. Uh, these are very unsettling. So we're in a constant state of hyperarousal, the psychiatrists call it, a constant state of, a, of fight or flight, where the world is being perceived uh, through these lenses of fear and anger. The, the, the point is, is that if we become, uh, if we allow those emotions to become fixed, then uh, if we have that predilection towards a, a, a an angry way of looking at the world, then we're lo- we're looking for enemies all the time. We're looking for people to blame for our anger for these terrible things, and we become rigidified in a in a particular identity, whether it's a political party, or uh, extreme religion, or uh, uh, you name it. And then now we have even more a setup for more problems because we've got rigid identities pitted against rigid identities, trying to fight for dominance. On the other end, if, if, you've got, if you've got this predilection for uh, fear, you, people can fall into a kind of a despair. You know, what is there to believe in? What is there to hang my identity on? So I think that, that kind of identifies the kind of dynamic you've described that's been going on since 9-11, that we have a very vocal uh, group uh, or series of groups of extreme identities, rigid identities, or very angry and who are defining the national agenda in terms of that anger and in terms also of blaming, finding someone to blame for it and looking for blame. So in a democracy, these are dangerous things. These are, these are not uh, the best parts of what democracy has to offer us. So I, I, I suppose it's in all of that is, is a choice that there is another part of our brain, not just the brainstem, uh, that allows us to make compassionate choices, that allows us to make civilizing choices, that allows us to look beyond our, our anger and our fear to something that's uniting. And I think the challenge in the country right now and the challenge to leadership in the media is how do we frame things in ways that don't keep feeding the fear and the anger and feed this notion of how do we, how do we work in a complex, diverse world? You know, it seems to me, John, that some of these disruptions are, um, in fact, ways that just focus our attention in an unnatural way on the fact that life really is scary. Life is scary all the time. Um, you know, you and I are going to be driving on highways uh, in the next couple of days. Uh, somebody could veer into our lane and, and hurt us really badly or, or end our lives. We, we're sitting here. We could have an aortic tear, one of us, and we could die very suddenly. That Life is fundamentally scary. It's simply impossible to live it in a constant state of awareness how com- of how completely frightening it is or and how random at times the terrible fates are. The, the, the thing, one of the things that I think that gets triggered here uh, by these events, whether it's 9-11 or Newtown or, or Boston, is that, con- is that awareness. And it kind of destroys some of the defenses, the natural mechanisms of living that make it possible for us to live positively as opposed into this, uh, to this state of constant awareness of our own vulnerability. 
I like the word vulnerability that a little bit better than scary. Uh, I, I think the vulnerability precedes the scary. Mm-hmm. So uh, life is extremely fragile, and there, it's, it's fraught with all kinds of uh, uh, you know, challenges and sometimes extreme challenges that can be f- scary or can be f- uh, uh, anger-inducing. And I think that's an important distinction so, um, and because otherwise we're kind of condemned to living lives of uh, playing out that fear and, and looking for people to blame for the fear or why we're afraid. And so I, I would suggest that we that's one of the first steps is for us to be able to recognize that, okay, there's uncertainty, there's complexity, I don't get this very much, I don't really understand what's happening to me, I don't like what's happening to me, but hold back on, on the looking for scapegoats, hold back on, on – uh, uh, buying into one's own fear or buying one in, into one's own anger. So th- this is obviously, because it's come up a couple of times in your speech, one of your m- major concerns here is that, um, as you say, when these things happen, one of the major systems that's being operated on is the equivalent of the system that gets uh, uh, that lights up in an animal if we step on the animal, right? You step on a snake or a wolverine, mm-hmm. it, it's going to try to bite you. And probably it's going to try to bite anybody that it can find, and it's not even going to make a lot of discriminations. Oh, that's the person who stepped on me. Uh, I'll only bite that person. I won't bite those people over there. Yeah. Uh, it's not It's not that kind of discriminating, rational thinking system. What you seem to be suggesting is that we're capable of that kind of blindness and mindlessness, but we're also capable of a higher order of thinking. I guess the question is, how do you make the bridge from that much more simplistic way of of lashing back uh, as opposed to the more higher order thinking? Well, I, this is the question of civilization. This is Freud's question. This is Aristotle's question. This is uh, uh, the question of every major religion. <clears throat> Excuse me. You know how do we how do we civilize ourselves? Mm-hmm. How how do we uh, activate parts of our brain, part of our being, that um, uh, aren't ultimately um, civilizing civilization crushing? Um, uh, it, it 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 fundamentally is a question of civilization. So that gets back to your first point. <clears throat> Excuse me about um, what's been going on since. Um, uh, if you want, I can, take, I, I can talk while you have a drink yeah, of water. Yeah, <laughs> so, well, first of all, let me just set the stage while John has a drink of water. This is John Woodall, who's a board-certified psychiatrist, the founder and director of the Unity Project, mm-hmm. a resilience learning system that was, was developed to promote resilient strengths in youth. Um, as you're, well, actually, respond to that because I have a sort of a follow-up place I want to go. I'll try well, to remember. Uh, I, when we're born, our instinctual sur- uh, survival mechanisms, <clears throat> I'm drier than I thought, um, are full-blown. They're, 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 they're ready to go from the moment we're born. All of our civilizing uh, tendencies are only latent. Mm-hmm. They need to be cultivated. They need to be practiced and rehearsed. We need role models. We need, uh, like I said, practice. And, and it's really a lifetime effort to, to develop the cortical skills that can tame our brainstem instincts. So, And I think in that response is uh, kind of the direction towards where we need to go. Uh, in terms of education, um, the cultural activities that endorse and support the core skills you need to to activate that civilizing process. There's essentially three. I, I, I don't like lists, but I'm about to give you a list. Uh, there, are, All of the skills that are defined as resilient or these civiliza- civilizing activities fall into what look like to me three categories. One is the ability to resist uh, uh, tribalization mm-hmm. uh, in the face of, of, um, uh, of danger or fear. Uh, the second is the ability to see f- fair-mindedly, to mm-hmm. see things for what they are and not bringing your biases into it. 
and being rigidly attached to your biases. And the third is the capacity to have dialogue. Uh, because none of th- there is no such thing as a resilient state. There is a resilient process that we're engaged in. So it's a dialogue. It's a dialectic within our within our own selves, uh, with with other people, with with communities, where we're trying to figure out how do we I- encompass the greatest amount of what it means to be a human being in this particular situation when we're all being uh, uh, pulled towards the worst part of our nature. Because anybody can, well, not anybody, but a lot, lots of kinds of leaders uh, rise to power by offering to control chaos. You want chaos controlled? I can control chaos for you. Um, the, the question is, is that resilience or is that something else? Well, I, I call it the, the Hitler test. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the, there's a lot of different definitions of resilience. And to me, they all fail if they don't pass the Hitler test. You know, if you use most of the definitions of resilience, Hitler was resilient in the Nazi party. The, the, the Nazis were resilient because they, they sprang back from a great adversity. They were able to mobilize great resources and, and develop relationships amongst themselves to accomplish goals, uh, but towards terrible ends. Mm. So this gets back to that first point that, that there, there is at, at fundamentally – an issue of identity when, when we suffer. What will we allow our suffering to make us smaller or larger? Uh, and the, the challenge in a, in a world that is so pulled by global forces is how do we, how do we resist these tendencies towards extreme ideology, e- extreme religious notions, uh, uh, e- extreme isolation, uh, when the solutions demand coordinated uh, efforts on a global scale? So um, as we're kind of wrapping up this segment of the conversation, um, I think one of the challenges that's posed right now can be almost symbolically summed up by something that happened in Boston on that day. So you have a group of people from Newtown who are running in the Boston Marathon, and I think they're doing exactly what John Woodall would have them do, which is create community, stay in a dialogue, look for positive statements that you can make, work together, work as a team, uh, all those those, those three things that that you you gave in your list. um, They're an outgrowth of maybe that kind of process. So there they are. Uh, running in the Boston Marathon, kind of symbolically starting to begin to maybe tip back upwards this one fallen domino. Um, and a domino that's behind it falls on top of them. You know, you have the you have the bombing go off. Now, I, I'm guessing that you've probably worked in places of the world where that's not that uncommon, where people who are trying, in fact, to, to, to upright a fallen domino get hit by another domino. But once again, this is, I think, maybe kind of new for Americans. Try, we're trying to follow the, the right model for this, and then something else happens. You know, it, talk about irony. Uh, with, when our friends went to, to Boston to run, and then, and then the, the bomb went off right across the street. Um, you know, and it, today is Patriot Day. So here's this idea of a very uh, traditionalized form of identity of America, and in Boston in particular. And uh, here we have something, again, where the world reaches in and uh, uh, or members from an, another community who don't like us have inflicted this, this terror on us. So, so it, it's a challenge to the thing I just said. How do we maintain a notion of our common humanity when there's people outside of our identity groups who are trying to kill us? So, it, again, it's, there's, this, there's this tension that mm-hmm. requires an application of uh, this sense of uh, our common humanity to a particular situation. So I think resilience is really situational. You have to be constantly balancing, you know, how do we protect ourselves versus, um, you know, how do we maintain our common, our, our sense of connection to others? Um, again, there's great examples of, of other communities in other countries who face this dilemma with far worse. Um, how much time have we got? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Give us an example. Examples are good. 
Well, I'll give you an example of Effendi, who was a, a, a man I knew in Bosnia when I, I lived over there for a while after the war uh, in the 1990s, and I was working for the State Department trying to put together a, a, a trauma response. And one of the conditions of the Dayton Accords was that the people who had been pushed out of their houses in Bosnia, the Bosnian Muslims, who'd been forced out by the Bosnian Serbs at gunpoint, and many of them raped and you know, horrible, just atrocities that occurred uh, in pushing them out of their homes. One of the uh, conditions of the peace accord was that they should be able to go back to their homes. Mm. But their, the people living in their homes had pushed them out at gunpoint. Mm. So now I'm working in this one town called Opatia with a, a man who's from uh, Bosnia, a Bosnian Muslim man. And I said, how in the world are we ever going to get these people back to their house houses without the war starting all over again? He said, well, come to Saturday morning to the masjid, which is the name for a Muslim community center. I want to show you something. So gathered that morning at 7 in the morning on this Saturday morning uh, were a group of kids from, let's say, 3 years old to 18, a whole big group of very polished scrub kids in kind of tattered clothes because they're all refugees but very neatly presented. And uh, so I sat down, and Effendi began, and he said, uh, children, what is the first obligation of a Muslim? Because these were all Muslim kids. Uh, European Muslims. What's the first obligation of a Muslim when we return to our homes in Bosnia? And every one of these kids said, the first obligation of a Muslim when we return to our homes in Bosnia is to forgive the people living in our houses. And I almost fell over. Mm. And then he said, what is the second obligation of a Muslim when we return to our homes in Bosnia? And in unison, because they'd obviously been practicing this, the kids said, the second obligation of a Muslim when we return to our homes in Bosnia is to ask the people living in our houses how we can help them. Mm. That We certainly don't hear that example with Islam in the, mm. in the West, but I didn't tell it to tell it a, a story about Islam as much as I, I, I wanted to make the point about leadership. And, and it's how a leader frames the response to the crisis that is exquisitely important. So we need leadership and we need a media that can support these kinds of challenges. You know, let's raise the level of the discourse so at least we're wondering how we can reach that goal as opposed to how do we dominate over another group or how do we squelch them or, 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 uh, or overpower them. It's 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 like that story of Gandhi when he's confronted with the uh, the Hindu man who's who's suffered a horrible wrong and members of his family have been killed. You know what what should he do? And he says, find a Pakistani child, uh, who, find a Muslim child who has whose uh, whose parents have been killed by Hindus and raise him as your own, but raise him as a Muslim. Right. Um, which is asking a lot, but I guess what that's what you're saying. We have to ask ourselves. I think we have to ask ourselves function. more. Uh, the, the alternative is increased isolation and increased uh, uh, atomization and conflict. Um, you mentioned the media, the kind of media that would support such a thing. We're going to talk about media in the next segment. So why don't we take a break? We'll be back with more John Woodall uh, and more of this topic after this. <laughs> Whenever we go to a break, John and I start talking about other stuff. So anyway, uh, we're back. Uh, if you're listening, by the way, we're about to play about a 13-minute interview uh, that has to do with how the media, how watching the news media, uh, coverage of things like the Boston bombing uh, or Newtown or 9-11, how it affects you, uh, how it affects anybody. So listen to this. And then when we come back, uh, John Woodall and I are going to respond to that interview. 
but also we'd love to hear from you, uh, even kind of at the level of sort of how are you how are you doing after the last few years, or maybe after the the fifteen years that started in two thousand. Uh, how do you think this has changed you, and how do you think it's changed American life? Uh, if those questions aren't too broad, and and uh, call up and give us specific examples. Eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. That's the number you'd be calling. Eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. So earlier this week, I think it was. I think it was on Monday afternoon. Uh, we spoke to someone who um, it wasn't Monday afternoon either. Noon either. It was for like Friday, right? It's all a blur at this point. Uh, we talked to someone who's really looked at the way. Uh, we are touched and changed and affected, uh, not by being in the presence of, of some of these disasters and tragedies, but simply by watching them on television, reading the newspapers, listening to the radio. There are a lot of ways to talk about an event like the Boston Marathon bombing, and there are a lot of ways to experience it too. But the way that most of us experience most of these kinds of events is through the media. We watch them on television, we listen to the radio, maybe we read newspapers, um, and we begin to understand them. Uh, but we understand them at some remove. And I think most people think of our experience through the media as something that's a relatively harmless thing. I mean, how much harm could come from seeing things that, yes, they upset us. You see a picture that startles you. Maybe you can't get it out of your mind for an hour or two. But how much harm can really come? How much scarring can really go on if we're just watching television? Well, actually, this turns out to be a more complicated question than you might think. And joining us now is Allison Holman, an associate professor in the program of nursing science at the University of Chicago, uh, California, excuse me, at Irvine. Uh, I almost moved her several thousand miles there. So, um, Alison Holman, this is something you've looked at, and, and, and it turns out that you know, we think of watching television as a pretty passive and transitory experience, but, but maybe not so much when you're looking at something like coverage of the marathon bombing. Yes, and thank you for having me on. It turns out that media exposure to some of these more traumatic types of events, such as the Boston Marathon bombing or 9-11, may have, for some people, more lasting effects. And, and so explain how it is that you tried to study this. In our first study, post-9-11, we looked at several thousand people across the country, most of whom were indirectly exposed to the 9-11 attacks by watching it, indirect, watching uh, the second plane hit the towers or watching the aftermath of buildings falling down live on television. And we looked at how that exposure impacted people over time. We watched them. We followed them for uh, three years post-9-11. And we identified in that study that the early exposures, high levels of early television exposure in the week following 9-11, and this was measured right after 9-11, that early exposure actually was associated with higher levels of post-traumatic stress-type symptoms as well as physical health problems three years out. After the Boston Marathon bombing occurred, we again went back out to several thousand people across the country, including a sample of roughly 850 people in Boston, 950 people in the New York area, and then roughly 3,000 people across the country, and we asked them about the types of exposures they were having through the media in the week following the Boston Marathon bombing. So we asked them about social media, we asked them about television, print, etc., radio included. 
And we looked at how this exposure was associated with their reports of acute stress symptoms. So they were feeling very stressed in the early aftermath of the bombings. And indeed, we found that the more hours of exposure they had to media coverage of the Boston Marathon bombings was associated with higher levels of distress. And, you know, uh, just uh, an observation, which is an unscientific observation, but one thing that I would say is that another thing that's going on now is because of social media and because of the increased pace of reporting, everybody's sort of trying to report everything all at once, some of the filtering that might go on uh, doesn't go on anymore. And I I mean, I, I can tell you that as somebody who was trying to begin to organize our coverage of the Boston Marathon bombing, I began to look at the pictures that were just coming out pretty raw on Twitter mm-hmm. just to see what there was and just even trying to understand what had gone on there. And I found myself seeing things, I mean, really startling, startling visceral images that I, I wouldn't want someone to come upon unprepared. Mm-hmm. In fact, the next thing I did was post a warning to my own Twitter followers saying, just be very, very careful about what you click mm-hmm. on and what you open because mm-hmm. the things you see may never leave your mind. Or and, mm-hmm. and, and I would assume that is part of the problem. There's just a lot of coverage and not all of it is heavily edited or filtered. Exactly. And that's, you know, with the advent of social media, we are seeing exactly what you're describing, which is people exposed to things that have not been filtered. If you go on to some of the online newspaper or news sites, what you'll see is there'll be a, before a graphic image is depicted, they'll put a screen up and say, editor is telling you, if you click on this, you may get disturbed. Well, you don't see that with social media. And on top of that, we also have this thing called reality television. Mm -hmm. And I am of the opinion that we are seeing a blurring between the lines of fantasy or fiction and reality. So, you know, you may see an an image that is highly disturbing and not be able to, and and it's so real to you because even though it's in the media, your view is that it's very real and it can actually create more disturbances and and distress in people. And so when you look at those disturbances, um, you're looking, as you say, there may even be sort of physical after effects or physical symptoms, but I assume you're, you're basically looking for some of the kinds of symptoms that we might associate with post traumatic stress disorder or something like that, right? Right. The symptoms that we looked at in the immediate aftermath of the Boston Marathon bombings were basically what are called acute stress symptoms, which are the same kinds of symptoms that you see in post-traumatic stress. So it's when people are having intru- you know, they're having thoughts and, and images of the event come back into their mind when they don't want it. They're feeling kind of hypervigilant. They're, they're feeling on edge. They're wanting to avoid thinking about or looking at things that remind them of the bombings, etc. So, yes, they're like post-traumatic stress symptoms, but they're the early version of them. I, I would also imagine, and I don't know how much how possible it has been to study this, although it sounds like you, you really do have some of the material to study this, and I'll, I'll just put a personal uh, attachment to it, which is that uh, I um, was very immersed in the coverage of 9-11, and I did experience an acute psychological disturbance afterwards. I mean, I had real significant problems. And, and twice now, um, just the just on the day of the Newtown shootings and then on the day of the Marathon bombings, um, for me, it, it quickly, the, the trigger was pulled very fast. It quickly... Mm-hmm. reawakened all of these ideas, these same symptoms of, of 
you know, racing heart and, and all kinds of kind of anxiety symptoms. And, and I really remember on both days thinking, am I going to be able to do this? Am I going to be able to do my job? And, right. and I would assume that each one of these kinds of events, if people consume a large amount of media coverage, they, they tend to build on one another. They may very well. And we did see in our Boston Marathon bombing study, we did in fact see that people who reported having had a direct exposure to 9-11, those who reported having been directly exposed to the Sandy Hook uh, elementary school shootings, were also both reporting higher levels of symptoms in the aftermath of the Boston Marathon bombing. So the more, the more you were exposed to the previous events, the more likely you were to have a reaction, a stronger reaction following the Boston Marathon bombing. We're talking to Allison Holman, associate professor in the program of nursing science at the University of California at Irvine. So the next question is how to think about this, mm-hmm. um, how to react to it. Um, I would imagine that if I go to see uh, a mental health provider and, and what I'm really presenting with is somebody with high stress levels that are generated by the consumption uh, of news media coverage of a disaster, that my insurance company may be reluctant to reimburse and even the provider, him or herself, may be reluctant to say, say well, yeah, that's an identifiable d- uh, syndrome. So, so what happens then? I mean, is, is it more effective to look at this another way, think about it another way, think about it as, as a public health problem? Well, in fact, that is the frame that I use in my work, is to think of things as an issue of a public health. Do we want to have people exposed to lots of these kinds of images? If you look at the pattern of media exposures, the way media does things is they roll the tape of the images over and over while they're telling you a long story on television, for example. Do we want to encourage some changes in the way the media does their reporting on these things? Do we want to simply do a public health-type campaign where we go out and we let people know And this is something the message of our study is clearly, of both our studies, our 9-11 study and our Boston Marathon bombing study, is clearly a public health message of try not to expose yourself to very many images. If you have to see, if you see something once, go away from it. Don't watch it again. Don't repeatedly show yourself things because that's probably not going to help you at all. And in the aftermath, in like now we're coming up on the anniversary of the Boston Marathon bombing, and certainly there's lots of stories in the media again about the event, and some of the pictures are being brought back. Mm -hmm. If people want to read about it, fine, but I would encourage them not to look at too many images and to not immerse themselves so deeply in anniversary coverage, because for some people it could reactivate some of the distress that they may have felt in the immediate aftermath of the event. We aren't looking at a disorder that is recognized in any way and diagnosable in any way at this point. We're just looking at a range of symptoms that are strong and that we have seen in our previous work. I think that one thing that's also helpful, uh, whether or not you know it falls within the, the range uh, of acceptable diagnosis, but it, what's the, one thing that's helpful and that presumably is going on right now as you and I are talking is a person listening can understand at least Oh, that's real. In other words, uh, if you if you're having what feel like anxiety symptoms in response to just things that you, that are on your television set or coming out of your radio, or that you're encountering on social media, um, it's not your imagination. It, it you very well may be having some pretty strong anxiety reactions or other kinds of traumatic reactions to media coverage. You don't have to discount that. 
Right. Absolutely. It's very important that people not discount that, actually. And it's not every not everybody is going to have those reactions. I'm not suggest trying to suggest that this is a universal thing. It's not a universal thing, but there are enough people who might have that reaction that it's worthwhile to pay attention to those kinds of symptoms if you have them. If I might, there's one other thing that I wanted to point out, which is that there was recently a study done in England in which they looked at the exposed people to traumatic images and put them in the MRI at the time when they were watching. And they found that people who were exposed to traumatic images had parts of the brain that were associated with the fear conditioning that we know are linked to PTSD. Those parts of the brain were activated when they saw the traumatic images. And a lot of those people reported increased numbers of flashbacks later on in the study. So I think it's very important for us to recognize that just because it's an image on a screen doesn't mean that it isn't having an impact on us. You know, and and I think it also goes back to what you are saying before about reality television, which is that Mm -hmm. typically one of the ways that we've sort of used media in the past is to deal with our our anxieties by encountering them in a fictionalized context. So that's Mm -hmm. almost a kind of systematic desensitization, right? You you watch violent or scary things, and and you may may even watch movies uh, about disasters, and probably one of the things that you're doing, one of the sort of bargains that your brain is making is it's saying, this isn't real, this this is a way to experience this in a way that's not real. And I do remember on the day of 9-11, as the enormity of it was beginning to sink in with me, I, I would occasionally have moments where I would think, this is so much like a movie that I've seen. I, it's, I, I can almost put my finger on the movie that it is, except that it's not a movie, that some right. basic relationship that I had with images like this one was being materially changed because I was so used to thinking of them as fictional. Absolutely. I was actually in Nigeria when 9-11 happened, and I didn't have access to any media for most of the time while I was there, but I happened on that day to be in the house of somebody who had a television set on And when he clicked on the TV and I saw the plane hit the tower and everything explode in flames, I said, what kind of Hollywood movie is this? What are they doing now? I mean, my immediate reaction was this was some bizarre Hollywood incarnation of disaster. Yeah, absolutely. Alison Holman, this is fascinating research, and we do thank you for taking the time to be with us. Alison Holman, an associate professor in the program of nursing science at the University of California at Irvine. She is doing research into the way, in fact, media coverage of traumatic events actually affects uh, our psyches. Uh, Thanks for being with us today. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Okay, bye-bye now. Bye. So, John Woodall, a lot of what we just heard fits in very well with a lot of what you said. Um, I want you and I to have some time to discuss that uh, maybe in the next segment. A lot of people have called in, though, and they want to respond to some of the things that you're saying, and I think that might be a a good idea just to to squeeze some of these calls in right here, too. We're going to start with Eric in New Britain. Hi, Eric. Are you still there? Yep, still here. What's on your mind? All right. You might still be here, but you're actually maybe a little bit far away from the base set of your phone or you're in a bad cell area. We can try to get back to you and see if we can hear you a little bit better. Let's try Derek in Windsor. Hi, Derek. Are you there? All right. I'm having a real bad run of luck here with the phone. I bet if I go to Allison right now, she's going to be there. Here's Allison actually in in Newtown. Hi, Allison. Hi, Colin. How are you? Good. You're on the air. Um, I just wanted to say that I felt an obligation to mention um, this is a great conversation um, that something that can be quite useful in helping a community and a population in the midst of being bombarded with 
traumatic and violent images over and over again as the role of the arts. Um, and I can provide a specific example that worked in my own life, if you would like. Sure, give us that specific example. At the Aldridge Museum um, in Ridgefield, Connecticut, in 2006, Josh Azzarello was awarded the um, Emerging Artist Award for that year, and he reworked footage of 9-11, um, highly sensitive and charged footage. And I remember even as a teenager walking into a small gallery and reliving some footage that was undoctored and some that had been manipulated to present, I suppose, like ulterior um, events from that day. And it was a private, removed, dangerous in the sense that you're you're confronting something face-to-face, and yet safe because you're in a gallery. This is something that's kind of removed from politics and the media and, and social life to a certain extent. And it allowed me, and I think in general the arts do this, be it the fine arts or theater or music, allow a person to become a leader, as your guest was describing before. Personally, it builds community. It allows people to take hold of trauma, or something highly charged, and manipulate it and just process it in a very different, civilized, and fruitful way. That's a a great example, Allison. And John Woodall, this is a fundamental human urge, right? It really does go back to to the cradles of civilization, that faced with everything that is uh, frightening about life or intimidating about life or that makes us feel vulnerable, we do. We sing, we dance, we we write epic poetry, we create art. Absolutely. Athena was the god of many things, but two of the things Athena was the goddess of was war and culture. And the Greeks very well understood that out of uh, great tragedy must come the creative spark uh, that that defines and unites the community. So th- this is as old as, as humanity, so you don't need necessarily people from uh, universities with degrees after their name to say something that every grandmother knows or every, you know, uh, all great traditions, all great religions point to this. How do we transform uh, our suffering into something noble? Um, in, in fact, I'm so glad Allison called because um, I uh, absolutely agree with your, her point about um, about the arts. In fact, in New York City, what we did after 9-11 uh, with this meeting of the uh, these various commissioners who asked me, should we have all the kids go to therapy? I said, no, what we should do is create a citywide arts program that promotes this choice, that we, we can we can turn away from our anger and our fear and our rigidity and extremism and choose compassion. In the city that's the most diverse city of the world, let's show that our great human garden here can flourish, and that will be our response to extremists who want us to think in one particular way. You know, I think also a lot of art is about anxiety anyway. I mean, and, and even children's art is about anxiety. This is one of the things Bruno Bettelheim argues right. in Uses of Enchantment. Why are scary fairy tales, the real primal fairy tales, not the Disney versions of them, why are they so incredibly scary and violent? And Bettelheim says, because those are childhood anxieties. What if my mother died? What would happen to me? What if my mother died and my father married somebody really horrible? What if somebody I really trust right now for my safety and sustenance turned into a really ugly, horrible person? and stop treating me that way. That's why we tell those stories, so that they can live those stories out. Um, We're going to take a quick break. We'll come back with more John Woodall. We've got an interesting call here on the line, also connected uh, to Newtown a bit. Uh, We're talking uh, in general about how we respond in an age when some of the safety and stability that we took for granted seems more imperiled. (laughs) 
Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Jane Ashley and Andrew John Paul George Ringo Lischke. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Katie Talarski is our executive producer and birthday girl. The part of Bill Curry was therefore played by Katie Talarski. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff practicing their silly walks, visit our website, WNPR.org. The Colin McEnroe staff is preparing to scatter to the four winds for a few days, but in our place we'll have some favorite old shows, new shows, and an episode of The Nose hosted by Mr. Dan Kosky. And now, back to Colin. Yes, that's all in the time ahead. And because of it, we had so, so many interesting calls, and because also uh, John Woodall and I have a lot of things to say, we actually um, asked if uh, one of our other guests, Brian Michael Jenkins from the Rand Corporation, could join us another day. I think we have almost enough time to finish up what we're talking about right now. Before we grab this call, though, uh, John, you know, I, I want to kind of analogize between two things. One of them is, you know, earlier in the show, you talked about uh, resilience and then the Hitler test. The idea being that you could create what looked like a resilient society using the methods of Hitler, but it wouldn't really be a resilient society. It would be a society that re- that substituted oppression and scapegoating for fear and chaos. So that's not real resilience. Um, you know, we look at the media and we look at the sort of the culture that we absorb, and there are similar questions that we ask, right? There are there are ways in which the media can be helpful to us uh, in, in understanding, processing, and maybe even uh, co- helping us compartmentalize in a, in a beneficial way uh, the things that we have to understand. And then there's ways in which the media just mm. seems only to freak us out. Absolutely. Uh, neurologically, the, the more you engage uh, the reward systems and the fight-or-flight systems of the brain, the more you're likely to engage people in an, in an addictive kind of engagement where, where they, they stop thinking for themselves and are kind of caught within the, the matrix of all the thoughts that those emotions can generate. So whether they be fear or whether they be anger or, or sexual appetites or whatever it might be. So the media is really good at packaging any kind of information into those little categories to keep our attention. The, the danger is when, uh, as your uh, previous guest from UC Irvine, one of my alma mater, uh, uh, was speaking about, that um, these aren't benign. You, you can have an exposure to a trauma by being in the presence of the trauma or by watching it on a screen. It really doesn't make any difference. The key thing that I think is at issue is that we are not powerless, that uh, you know we have the experience, this fun- fundamental vulnerability of powerlessness in our life, that we have anxiety about it, that we can't engage the world that can change bad things from happening to us. But uh, the, the, how we deal with that powerlessness, that sense of powerlessness, kind of determines our fate. Mm-hmm. We either allow fear or anger uh, to run our, our, our life, or we make conscious choices that <clears throat> free us from these kinds of addictive uh, uh, response patterns. Grab a cup of water here. Yeah. We've got just <laughs> enough time to squeeze, uh, I think, one last call here. This is from an EMT, uh, I think, who, who had to deal with uh, Newtown or some of the ravages of Newtown. Hi, we've only got about uh, a minute and a half left. I hope you can tell your story in that time. Hey, Colin, thanks for taking the call. Sure. And uh, before I make my comment, I just want to also thank Dr. Woodall for his work uh, with, uh, with Newtown in the, in the aftermath of Sandy Hook. He did some wonderful uh, in-person um, meetings and also did some excellent articles on our local newspaper that I know helped some, definitely helped some folks. Um, the one comment I wanted to make, uh, and, and this is coming from personal experience, is that unlike uh, what I think a lot of people assume happens, that there's a big, uh, big amount of stress uh, right after the event, whether it be Sandy Hook, whether it be the Boston bombing, whether it be Fort Hood, wherever it might be, and then the, the response tapers off after time, 
for some people, and my, myself included, the, the response didn't actually manifest itself after some time. It was about seven or eight months uh, in, in, in my uh, in my instance, but not everybody reacts to these situations in the same way. So even though the, 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 the press coverage may be diminishing and, and it may be out of the headlines, um, some of these things do take a long time to, uh, to uh, show up in some people's cases. Yeah, John, we got about 30 seconds. That, that, I would agree with him, by the way. That was my experience. Uh, and again, going back to the first comments we made, uh, it, it, it's important not to view our ex- response to these things purely in medical terms. You know, I, I think of Lincoln again at Gettysburg. Um, you know, he took that horrible tragedy where hundreds of thousands were were uh, uh, wo- uh, wounded throughout that war, and and he said uh, the purpose of it is for us to dedicate ourselves, rededicate ourselves to a nobler purpose. So, in 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 saying those words in the Gettysburg Address, he took the suffering, gave it a higher meaning, and now gave people a trajectory to take all that anguish and that suffering and and directed towards something nobler. We need leaders who can do that now. We, we need media who can do that. We need shows like this that can say, look, we're not just symptom clusters as people. We're, we're not just re-experiencing phenomenon and, and PTSD symptoms. We're people who can make choices about who we are to each other as citizens in the country and the world. That's a great place to end, John Woodall. Thank you so much for your time. Yes, we are scattering to the four winds. We have some very interesting programming that will appear for you in this time slot. So uh, we'll be and we'll be back uh, live, I guess, a week from tomorrow, I think. Thanks to everybody who helped out today, and we will be back. But we'll be back with an interesting show tomorrow. <laughs>